Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Hello, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of the Parley Podcast. I'm your host, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden. This season, the focus of the episodes is on bilingualism, multilingualism, how languages interact, how children learn more than one language, and much more. Our first guest this season was Dr. Yasona Senos. She shared her knowledge and experience with us on pedagogical translanguaging in a minority context, more specifically the Basque Country. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Fred Genesee. Dr. Genesee is a professor of psychology at McGill University. His primary research interests focus on bilingualism and bilingual first language acquisition in normal and impaired populations. In particular, his research examines the early stages of the acquisition of two languages with the view to one, better understanding this form of language acquisition and two, ascertaining the neurocognitive limits of the child's innate ability to acquire language. He is also interested in second language acquisition in school and the modalities for effective acquisition in school contexts. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Genesee. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So um, our guests really like to know a little bit more about um, the speakers on the podcast. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you have done in the areas of language use in schools and dual language learning. Okay. Well, um, I've always been interested in language um, from a kind of acquisition point of view. And even as an undergraduate at the University of Western Ontario, I did a an undergraduate research project that was looking at uh, the brain and, and language. Uh, there was a, a, an eminent psychologist who did research on language and the brain at Western, and she supervised my dissertation. And then when I came to McGill to do my PhD, I actually worked at the Montreal Neurological Institute, working with uh, Dr. Brenda Milner initially, uh, and the intent was that I would look at the neurocognitive substrates of language acquisition. I actually switched and looked at more behavioral kinds of studies rather than neurocognitive ones, but I continue to be interested in language, and I'm, I'm not quite sure where this interest came from, but in hindsight, I realized that Part of my interest was probably linked to the fact that language is really a distinctly human ability, it distinguishes us from all other animals, even primates. Many primates have very complex communication systems, but they're not nearly as complex as the human language system is. And it really is, from a developmental point of view, it's really children's window into the world. So it's that. Uh, sort of notion has really permeated a lot of my research interests since. I initially started off doing research on uh, uh, bilingualism in school contexts. I was a student at McGill in Montreal, and I started to work for a local school district doing evaluations of their French immersion programs in the 1970s. And this is when immersion programs were quite young in a way, and there was a thirst to understand how effective they were. So I worked there for several years, and then I joined the faculty at McGill full-time and continued to study second language learning in school contexts. And then subsequently, I, I began to realize that there was actually a dearth of research on children who grow up bilingually. So there has been a wealth of research on monolingual acquisition, but surprisingly little research on children who are in and these situations where they're actually acquiring two languages. Uh, and the few studies that had been published on this topic indicated that there was a general feeling that growing up with two languages in the home was uh, puts children at risk for delayed language development, incomplete language development. And in the extreme case, it was even thought by some that it could result in language disability or language impairment. 
So I uh, I started to do research on uh, these kinds of children in Montreal. Montreal was an ideal setting to do this research because many children grow up with French and English in the home. And uh, aside from my, my interest in this as a kind of theoretical or scientific topic, I was interested in really looking at uh, the limits of children's language learning ability in these circumstances with a view to seeing whether these concerns about dual language learning were really valid. It didn't seem to me reasonable that the brain was limited to learning only one language. But there was really a lack of research on the topic. And the research that existed at the time was uh, limited and it was flawed in certain ways. So I really embarked on that kind of research in order to explore these issues more broadly. And at the time, there were very few researchers looking at these children. There were researchers in Europe, and there was the McGill group, my group. But other than that, there were really was nobody else looking at it. So I continued that for some time. And then, and in the process, I was working with graduate students and colleagues at McGill who were interested in children who have a language a disability. And so we were interested in looking at dual language learning in children with a language disability. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Because if anybody's at risk because of dual language learning, it might be children with an innate language disability. And then finally, there was a further development in my interest uh, where I started to become interested in looking at children who were adopted. And these were children who were born and raised initially in China, but then were adopted by families in Quebec. And at that time, they, they discontinued learning Chinese, and they began to learn French. And my interest in these children was really from the point of view that they were very early second language learners. And so the question in my mind was, do children who begin to learn a second language at that young age, do they learn the second language um, like a first language, or does the pattern of development, does the neurocognitive involvement uh, during learning at this early stage look like second language learners rather than first language learners. So even though this is a rather unique population, um, there are some results that emerge from this that really, I think, have quite significant um, consequences for the way we think about early second language learning under more typical situations. And when you say early second language learning, with what age range are we looking at here for these children that were well, adopted? The research on early second language learning really was looking at children who were who were exposed to two languages before they were born, because we realize now that language acquisition actually begins before children are born because they can hear mm -hmm. the sound language before they're born. But we were focusing clearly on children who were anywhere from uh, 18 months of age to five years of age. So these are children who are preschool age and they're learning language in a situation where they're not being taught language, they're just being exposed to it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really interesting to hear about how your your focus on research has changed over the years. And I there's one thing in particular that you said that I wrote down. I really like how how you framed it, that language is children's window into the world. And it, it truly is. And and I think that that's a wonderful way of putting it. Um, now you know, in, in some of the um, books that you've authored or articles that you've authored, you often use the term dual language learning. Could you just maybe define that a little bit for our listeners? Yes, so, so the term dual language learning is quite widely used now, both by researchers, but also by other professionals. And it refers to anybody who's learning more than one language. It could refer to learning two languages, it could refer to learning three or more languages. Um, and it really replaced the term of bilingual learning, bilingual acquisition. Uh, and um, I'm not quite sure why that switch occurred. The terminology still changes a lot. And most recently, people now talk about multilingual acquisition. And the fact of the matter is that most research has been done on children who are learning only two languages. There's relatively little research on children with three or more languages, but the term multilingual is usually referred, uh, is usually used to refer to the fact that 
the learners may have multilingual backgrounds in the sense that in a classroom context, you might, even in French immersion, you might have children whose native language is English, but some of the children's native language may be Spanish and maybe Ukrainian. So it's really referring to the languages of those children rather than the languages that they're learning. Because most of the research that, that I know of has, has looked at children who are bilingual, not multilingual. But it really can be used interchangeably, in my opinion, with the term bilingual. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's even broadened to refer to not only learners, but educational programs. So whereas initially people would talk about bilingual education, they now talk about dual language education. But they're essentially uh, synonymous. And I think to some extent, it's the shift in terminology has really been motivated by more political and social issues than other issues. Yeah, I agree. And that can lead to some confusion, right? Because oftentimes the same words mean have the same concept, whereas other times it's not at all the same meaning. We'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about translanguaging and cross-linguistic um, right. you know, pedagogy. So before we get into that, though, on the topic of dual language learning, so you did co-author a book um, called Dual Language Instruction from A to Z, Practical Guidance for Teachers and Administrators. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about this resource? And, and how it might be helpful to some educators who are interested in, in dual language uh, teaching, learning, pedagogy. Sure. So one of, as I mentioned earlier, one of my uh, chief concerns in all of the research that I've done is to provide scientific evidence that really can inform people's opinions about dual language learning, dual language education, and also research that can provide guidance on how to uh, construct learning environments in school or outside school, which will foster children's acquisition of more than one language. Because um, there are many myths and misunderstandings about dual language learning bilingualism in the population at large. And many of those myths and misunderstandings really underestimate children's ability to acquire more than one language. So primary motivation in most of my research has been to not only do research, which I think is scientifically respectable, but also then to uh, translate those findings into information that can be used by educators, parents, policymakers, and so on. So this book that you mentioned was done in collaboration with two colleagues of mine, Elsie Hamine and Nancy Cloud, who are really teacher educators. So they're more frontline educators than I am. I'm the kind of research guy on the team. And together we wrote this book. The primary audience for the book was really a, a, a US audience. And the goal of the book was to do exactly what I just said, is to translate as much research as we were aware of into guides on how to construct programs for students who are learning through two languages. And so these are these are not uh, programs where kids are simply learning a second language in school, but these are programs where students are learning through two languages. So part of their instruction is in the native language, and part of their instruction, a significant part of their instruction, is in 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 a second language. And now in the U.S., um, there's there's particular. Uh, peculiarities about their programs that make them very interesting, and that is that many of the students in their dual language programs come from majority language backgrounds. They're English speakers. But there's also a significant, and I would say even larger, portion of their dual language programs really are oriented towards students who speak a minority language at home. In most cases, these are children who speak only or primarily Spanish at home, and when they go to school, rather than being educated only in English, they're educated through Spanish and English. So this is a minority language context for them. In some of these programs, all of the children in the program speak a minority language at home. In some of the programs, about half of the children in the program speak English as a native language, but the other half speak a minority language. So these are what you know, we in Canada created uh, immersion programs 
In the US, programs which have minority and majority students in them are referred to as two-way immersion programs because there's speakers of both languages in the classroom and each is learning a language from the other group. So thus it's called two-way immersion. So the book is really intended for uh, educators to help them uh, design, uh, uh, write curriculum, design curriculum, teach, assess, and support students who are learning through the medium of two languages in these kinds of programs. I, you know, I, I wanted to bring this book up because, as you know, here in Canada, we have immersion programs, but in you know, a lot of the provinces where, um, you know, French is the minority language, English is the majority language, there are a lot of English children who are enrolled in French schools and but these aren't immersion schools. So, you know, I know we talked about this a little bit in the pre-interview that it, it is very similar in a sense to these two-way immersion programs in these cases because you have children who speak English as their, their dominant language in the French schools, but you also have children who speak French um, as their dominant language in the French schools. And so the school system in Canada isn't designed as a two-way immersion program, but the children that are enrolled in these schools are coming from very different linguistic backgrounds. And so, um, you know, I think that there's some very useful information in this book that might help because I know that a lot of teachers in these linguistic minority contexts in Canada and, and elsewhere are really struggling with how do you help children learn through the medium of languages and not just, you know, teaching in that language. Um, and so um, I'll definitely put the uh, information for this book in the show notes so listeners can go to the parleypodcast.com and any resources that we talk about today will be there. Um, so could, I, there's another book that I wrote with uh, Elsie Hamayan, who was a co-author on the book you mentioned, the A to Z book, uh, called Clill in Context. Mm -hmm. Talked about terminology before. <laughs> the situation is even more complex because in the in the context of Europe and increasingly Europe, people refer to immersion type programs as CLIL, which stands for Content Language Integrated Learning. For some reason or other, which I don't understand, they didn't want to use the word immersion, so they coined this expression CLIL. And Elsie and I wrote a book which looks at CLIL and how to implement CLIL programs in different uh, socio-cultural contexts, including the context where the students are minority language speakers and how do you implement these programs to support their language development. Yeah, the point you're making in general is an extremely important one because the social context in which children grow up and the social context of their schooling is really critical for the success of these programs and the success of the students in them. So French immersion programs in Canada uh, undoubtedly have been successful because not only are they for the most part well implemented, because in most cases until recently, the majority of students in these programs come from majority language backgrounds and they're learning a second language, which even in the case of Canada and French is a minority language, nationally speaking. So these students have all the benefit that comes from being a member of a majority group because that uh, community supports their development of English. So the exposure that they get to French in school in no way jeopardizes their development of English. And so the challenge in French immersion programs, quite frankly, is uh, how to support the development of French because it's French that is not being supported as much outside school as English. So the context you mentioned is also a, a, the same kind of issue that you've got uh, schools which are really designated for French speakers who are in a minority situation. Their language is really doesn't have the same status or uh, value outside school. It, these children are often prone to start moving more and more towards English over time because it's the dominant language of the community. So having English-speaking students in these schools is an additional challenge because you're bringing the forces that favor English outside school, you're bringing those forces into the school. And I think the challenge is how do you uh, make sure that French continues to have high status in the school, even though you might have a significant number 
children in the school who are English-speaking. Um, and the success of these programs, whether it's immersion programs for English-speaking children or the success of uh, programs, two-way two immersion programs for minority students, the success of these programs depends critically on raising the status of the minority language. It's critically important that in all dual language programs, the language which has the minority status is really supported as much as possible. So let me illustrate what that means. I think what it means that at times, and say you've got a French immersion program and all the kids are English speaking, uh, in order to ensure that these students, there's no question that these kids will learn English. There's absolutely no evidence, no nothing in our experience over 50 years indicates that these students' English language skills are in jeopardy. So the real issue is how do we create a school environment which supports their acquisition of French as much as possible? So for me, that means that you, you teach through the medium of French as much as possible. You favor the use of French by students and teachers and school administrators as much as possible throughout the K-12 sequence, because that's, that's the way that you put value on learning French. Now, in the case of a French school for Francophone students, but you have a sizable proportion of Anglophone students, you have to do the same thing. You have to support French within that school as much as possible. I realize in many situations, you, you having English-speaking students in those classrooms is necessary, unavoidable, it can be a, a, an advantage, but you should, the focus by all personnel in the school should always be on maintaining the dominance, frankly, of French so that English doesn't come to dominate. These children don't need support for English for the most part. That's going to come. That'll happen. Where they need, what they need is support for the acquisition of French um, so that their achievement in French is as, as good as it can be. It's very easy to think that dual language education, bilingual education, means treating both languages equally. But if you do that, you're going to, in effect, favor the, the language that's dominant outside school. So in school, what you really need to do is, in a sense, I think, put the emphasis on the minority language so that you counteract the effects of the dominant language in school. Once they leave school, English is going to dominate. So you don't want to recreate that situation in school because then it doesn't, it's not favorable for anybody because it will really disfavor the acquisition of French, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that we also need to raise awareness on what it means to learn a minority language and that there needs to be that conscious effort to always make it uh, or, or raise the status of that language and, and to really encourage children to want to speak French in school as well, because I know that sometimes their default is to speak to their peers in English. And this reminds me, I think during our pre-interview, you mentioned that um, as children get older, peers are often have a stronger influence than adults. Can you, I think that it ties into what we're talking about here. So can you elaborate on that? So when they're older, peers would have a stronger influence than adults themselves. Well, there's a lot of research that shows that uh, children from minority language backgrounds, and, and I'm going to cite research out of from the U.S. because a lot of that research has been done there, that, for example, children who are born into families where Spanish is the dominant language, and they, the parents use Spanish with them, they use Spanish with one another, and in their immediate community, they may even use Spanish a lot. But over time, and a relatively short period of time, as these children's social networks expand, to go wider into the community and beyond the community and the school, they come into contact with English more and more. And English has very high status. Young children are very aware of the status of, of the dominant language. And so they start to gravitate towards English because it's the language of high status, but also it's increasing the language that's spoken by many of their <clears throat> friends and their peers. So there's a very, very strong motivation on the part of young learners, preschool and early school age, to really fit in socially with the children, the other children that they play with and interact with. 
And the way that they do this is by not only looking like these children, but sounding like them. So if the, if their peers speak English predominantly, they're going to want to obviously speak English. Um, and so these children, and the research shows this, is that these children, there's a, there's a danger that these children will start to almost abandon Spanish in interact because they're interacting outside the home with in English more and more. And you even hear, we hear examples of this in Quebec, where French-speaking children born in French-speaking families in areas of the city that are predominantly English-speaking, once the children leave the protection of their home and they start playing out with other children outside the home, they start to use English more and more. And, and then when they come back and start interacting with the parents in the home, they some children begin to prefer using English with their parents, even though they've actually only ever used French with their parents. So these are forces that are, uh, are and influences that we have to be very mindful of. And the school can help by emphasizing French, say, in the school. But parents also have a role to play because they need to also emphasize the use of French in, in the home. This is not easy to do because they may find themselves using French, even though their children want to use English with them. But uh, it, uh, different parents deal with this in different ways. But it's 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 it is, it's important to do if you really want your child to learn both languages. Yes, I can speak from experience. I sometimes sound like a broken record because I'm always telling my children, speak to me in French, speak to me in French. And, and, you know, sometimes when you're in the middle of something and if they ask me something in English, because I understand it, I'll answer without thinking. So I have to make a conscious effort to, you know, tell them to, okay, can you say that in French or I'll answer in French, but it is a constant, you always have to be mindful of it. It's, it requires so much effort. (laughs) For sure. Well, that's right. And I, I really, after years and years of doing research on children, uh, young children learning language, I really come to the conclusion that it, the learning two languages, maybe three languages, is really not difficult for children. The difficulty, the challenge is for the adults around the children. The adults around children learning more than one language have to create a learning environment that supports the development of both of these languages and as you pointed out, that really means creating a learning environment which uh, puts as much emphasis as possible on the minority language. Because if the parents don't do that, if the schools don't do that, the natural social forces will favor the acquisition of the dominant language. And that's not beneficial for anybody because these children are going to learn that language regardless of what we do. How They can't not learn it because they needed in order to survive in the community. But they can't they can abandon the minority language because it's, it, it, the reality is when they're younger, it may not be so important. Mm-hmm. So well, parents have a critical role to play. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And I think that that is something that we need to um, talk more openly about and raise awareness on, on parents' role when it comes to um, dual language learning. <laughs> Before we continue, I wanted to let the listeners know that Parlay Podcast has partnered up with MedBridge, a continuing education platform for healthcare professionals, which includes educational resources for school-based speech-language pathologists. In fact, you can find six courses on second language acquisition. If you use the promo code PARLAY, P-A-R-L-E, you can save up to $175 with this code. So check it out. And also check out all of the resources that I'm talking about today with my guest at theparleypodcast.com and click on the Parley Podcast icon where you'll find all of the episodes from this podcast. So there's been a lot of talk about translanguaging over the last you know, couple of decades. Um, like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the um, first episode of season four is on this topic as it pertains specifically to a linguistic minority context. Now, um, when it comes to translanguaging, can you tell us a little bit more about this pedagogical strategy and also about perhaps other terms that are used somewhat interchangeably with the, with translanguaging? Translanguaging is actually a term that has been around for a long time. 
although it was not well known until recently. It was actually a term that was uh, coined by researchers in Wales. And Wales is a community much like uh, Quebec in some ways or parts of the rest of Canada, where there's two languages, Welsh and English, with English being dominant and Welsh being the minority language. And in the bilingual dual language programs in Wales, they developed a pedagogical strategy which used both languages within the same classroom, and they called it translanguage. Now, in, our, in the Canadian immersion programs, uh, we uh, took a different route. So in the programs that were uh, first instituted in Quebec in the 1960s, they adopted a monolingual approach so that when the students were in the French portion of the school day, the idea was that the teachers should use only French, that the teachers should avoid using English. And, and that would, as long as the, that was a designated time during the school day, which was devoted to French, then the teachers should use French and they should encourage the students to use French as much as possible. And in early grades, actually, that works quite well because in the very young grades, kindergarten grade one, the children will actually, as soon as they start to learn French, they'll use as much French as they can because they'll do what they think will make their teacher happy. <laughs> so if the teacher's happy when they speak French, they'll speak French. It gets harder to do that as they get older because they have minds of their own. Now, um, so we've, we've adopted that approach. And the reason that approach was adopted was largely because it was felt by the people who created these programs, again, McGill researchers, Wally Lambert and Wilma Penfield, they felt that because the English was so dominating and so influential in these children's lives in general, that if we wanted them to learn French in school through immersion, that we should expose them to French as much as possible and we should encourage them to use as much French as possible because by using French as much as possible, they will learn French. It was, it, there was a concern even then that if the children were allowed to use English during the French portion of immersion, that that's all they would do. Why, why use French if you can get away with English? So the idea was we're going to promote the development of French by using only French during certain periods of the day. And then during the English portions of the day, they would use it. So this was a sort of what Jim Cummins referred to as bilingualism through monolingualism. We had this monolingual model. It's sort of like the two solitudes model of Canadian immersion. Now, uh, in, in effect, this meant that the students were discouraged and in some senses not allowed to use English during the French portions of the day. And I want to come back to that because maybe that was a little bit misguided. Now, over the years, there has been a lot of research on bilingualism uh, in not only children, but also adults. And in, in a very brief way, what this research is showing that uh, when people learn two languages, there's a lot of interactions between these two languages. These languages don't exist in their brains in, in isolation from one another. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that shows that when bilinguals speak one language, say they're speaking English, then even the, the French, the part of the brain that controls French, that is active. It's not as uh, salient, it's not as uh, robust at that time as English, but it, there's a lot of evidence that bilinguals use one language, the other language is also activated. Uh, and, there, and I could cite lots of evidence that shows that the two languages of bilinguals don't exist in isolation. They actually uh, coexist and they interact, even though we're not always aware of it. And bilingual So this has led to the notion that maybe we, in bilingual programs, dual language programs, in order to capitalize on how the brain deals with two languages, maybe we should develop pedagogical strategies that also reflect how the brain deals with two languages. So maybe we shouldn't use this monolingual approach. Maybe we should use a more bilingual approach, translanguaging approach, or what I prefer to call, and my colleagues, a cross-linguistic approach. So you see, the translanguaging notion uh, is, a, is, a, is a bilingual strategy for, uh, for teaching children. The idea is that we should allow bilinguals to use all of their linguistic and cognitive resources, whether we're teaching in the French part of the day or the English part of the day. 
And this is really a reflection of this recent research that shows that there are, are all these interactions. Now, the recent incarnations of translanguaging were actually devised by uh, researchers and pedagogues who live and work in New York City, and they were working with uh, Spanish-speaking children, largely from Puerto Rico, who are in either English-speaking schools or in a bilingual school. And their notion was that we should encourage these students to be using Spanish and English as much as possible so that they can use all of their linguistic resources at the same time to learn, and that this will also foster the development of these two languages. Now, um, and I think that there's a lot of good reasons to support a bilingual across linguistic approach because it does take advantage of the resources. Say you've got a French-speaking child who already knows how to read in French. If the child is actually starting to learn to read in English, you can, as a teacher, you can capitalize on what they know in French reading to teach them how to read in English. The problem is that if you uh, allow them just to, in my opinion, and a lot of people share this opinion, if you've got majority language students in the program and you have a, you allow free use of both languages all the time, you're going to give dominance to English. You're going to encourage the children to use English all the time because why would they ever use French if they could get away with English? So the original motivation behind French immersion was reasonable, require that they use French because otherwise they won't do it. So a, a, a wide open a bilingual approach or translanguage approach has to take into account the context of the program and the context in which these children are growing up. So if you've got children who are from the majority language group, you, as I mentioned before, you really want to encourage them to use the minority language and only to use the uh, majority language sparingly. If you've got students from the minority background, then it makes sense to encourage them to use the minority language as much as possible. Now, the question arises, how do you do this in a school program in some ways that's actually useful? So uh, I wrote a paper with uh, Roy Lister and Susan Ballinger and colleagues from Saskatchewan where we, we tackle this issue. And our, our view is that uh, translanguaging or what I would prefer to call cross-linguistic pedagogy makes sense. We should, we can, we can move away from this monolingual approach and we could approach a more bilingual or cross-linguistic approach, but we need to do it in a controlled fashion. So teachers should um, uh, have a, a clear goal in mind when they're, when they've decided to use or let the students use two languages within the school classroom. Don't use don't use both languages or don't use the student's native language if they're majority language students, only because it's easy. So there's a danger when you've got children who don't speak the second language to use the first language because it's easier for everybody. But if you make it easy for them now, you're making it harder for them later on because they're not going to acquire the second language skills they need to do advanced schoolwork. So if you, so you've always got to have a clear goal in mind for why you're going to integrate the use of both languages. And it should have a pedagogical purpose and it should be controlled by the teacher, not by the students. So for example, you might want to uh, have the students think about or use both languages during a, a lesson when you want to uh, raise their metalinguistic awareness. So again, say you're teaching uh, reading or writing and you want the students to understand how the letter-sound relationship is English is the same or different from the letter-sound relationship in French, then that's the time when you can say, say you're in the French class at the period of the day, you might say, look at, this is how this letter is pronounced in French. Does it have the same pronunciation in English? Is it different? Or this is how you ask a question in English. How would you ask a question in French? So that you have a clear pedagogical goal in this case is to raise children's metalinguistic awareness. Now, this is a very important goal because we know that metalinguistic awareness is very important for reading and writing. You might have another goal where you want the students to think about some school a topic that you're teaching. Say you're doing something on outer uh, space or something on deep sea diving. 
And this, you might want to get the students to think about this topic and ask them if there's anything they've read or know about these topics in either language. So that you're drawing on their knowledge from both languages in order to get them ready to acquire new knowledge about the topic. If you were to ask them to do this only in their second language, they might not be able to access all of the knowledge that they have about this topic. So once again, there's a clear goal in mind. The teacher can control it because after she raises their awareness of the topic, then she could shift the language to the second language so that all they're doing after that is really only the second language. So there's a clear goal in mind, in mind and the teacher controls it. I, I think these, uh, and I think that teachers have to be acutely aware of the social status of the two languages. And it should be used primarily, in my opinion, uh, to reinforce the language that otherwise is not being favored by the community at large. Yeah, and you raise so many good points. Um, you know, first, metalinguistic awareness. I don't think that children will necessarily make those connections on their own, right? That they, they might not necessarily have that um, intuition that, oh, it is the same sound in French as it is in English, or perhaps it's different, or they, they kind of sometimes see it as two separate languages, two separate entities without seeing how it's, they're interrelated. So I think that making that more explicit to them is really important because they, they may not. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's interesting. Some children make these connections quite naturally, but a lot of children do not. And it's not surprising they don't, because if your classroom is built on a monolingual model, they're trying to suppress one language when they're using the other one. So giving children an opportunity to see connections between the languages is very useful. Now, you know, this kind of activity can happen in the course. Say you've got, you're during the French portion of the day. So as the teacher's teaching, something might occur to her where she can make a connection between French and English during that lesson. And so she would have a little sidebar where she would be talking about something in science in French, and she realizes that the French terms are the same as the English terms, or maybe the terms are actually very different, but they sound the same. So she could say, okay, she could raise her hand and say, okay, does anybody know the word for this in English? And let's talk about that. Or what she could do is she could make a note of that and do that at the end of the lesson. So there's this uh, concept, which is at the end of each lesson, or at the end of several lessons, teachers will uh, open the class up so that they make uh, connections, they think about connections between the two languages, but they do it during a designated period of the lesson so that they can keep control of it. And um, I think that makes a lot of sense because say you're in a, say you're, in a French immersion classroom, and you want to prepare the students for, for to do science uh, in English later on, if you've been doing science in French up until this point, then you might take some of the technical terms that you've been using in French, and at the end of the week, you would write these terms down on the board, and then you'd say, okay, does anybody know how we say this in English? And if they don't, teach them the terms. So that when they go to the English portion of the curriculum, they already know some of these technical terms. Or similarly, if you're in the schools that you reference, these are French schools, French language schools for Francophone students, you also want to be preparing them to be able to read material in English after you do a lot of your instruction in French, in science in French, then you could have a bridging period at the end of the week or during at the end of each day where you English. And the advantage of that is that the teacher can use French all of the time. And during these kinds of activities, the teacher does not have to use English. The teacher can continue to use French, but she's getting the, the students to use English, but in a very selective manner. It has a goal in mind and it's controlled by the teacher. Love how you're giving us so many very useful strategies, tips, and things that teachers can start using, you know, tomorrow in their classroom. And um, one thing that I'd like to highlight is that a lot of these words, especially when you're talking about French and English, there are a lot of words that are very similar. If I, one 
uh, topic that came to mind was photosynthesis, right? So if they're teaching about photosynthesis in science, well, a lot of the words are actually the same in French and in English, right. photosynthesis, if you're talking oxygen, oxygen, uh, échange, exchange. So they're very similar. And so, again, children may already know some of these words in English or at least have heard about them. They may not have a very thorough understanding of them, but then, you know, to, for them to have almost that aha moment where, oh, yes, I do know this in English and, oh, great it's you know it's the same in french or very similar in french so um, yes that's right and and helping students uh, understand the similarities between two languages is very useful again when it comes to reading and writing people may think that english and french are very different but in fact english and french are remarkably similar to one another and understanding that is very useful for young learners because if they're reading a text in their second language or they're writing a text in their second language and they come up against something that they're having trouble with, by, by having these uh, cross-linguistic uh, mini-lessons, then you're also teaching the students strategy they can use in order to overcome the difficulties that they're facing when they're using their second language. So they may come across a word in their second language which they don't quite understand one strategy they could use is to say, does this look or sound like a word I know in my language? And then it can help them get over that hurdle. But it's also really important to show students where there's differences, because sometimes the differences can, seeing things that are thinking that they're saying that they're different can create its own problems. Okay. I also, quite frankly, um, kids are naturally curious about language. But we don't allow, we don't create spaces in our programs to allow them to express interest. Okay. I mean, I think an area that's really particularly important is in terms of sociocultural issues. So the way that you use language to communicate with one another, and how is this the same in English and French? How is it different? Uh, showing students that the way you use language. Uh, is important because it can it can influence people's attitudes. So saying things in the wrong way may have negative consequences. And we can do that by making these cross-linguistic comparisons. Especially with, you know, different cultures, different, you know, um, immigrant children in our schools, they may have, you may see some of those um, more significant differences, whereas French and English, I think, culturally, for the most part, it's very similar, but absolutely raising children's awareness of different cultures and the way language is used across cultures is definitely very beneficial. Yeah, I, I think we don't do enough with culture. So even in our programs, whether it's a French school for Francophones or an immersion school for Anglophones, increasingly there are students in these classrooms who are neither English speakers nor French speakers. So these are the multilingual learners in a sense. So I think that this cross-linguistic approach can also encompass, to a more limited extent, but can encompass other languages. So if you're doing something on counting or you're doing something on color names or something, young children, if you've got children in the classroom who speak a language other than French or English, you can ask them, what do you call this color in Serbian? What do you call this color in Arabic? So that children develop an appreciation and interest in other students in the classroom who are different from them. A question that I often get from teachers is, well, what if I don't know those languages? How can I support this cross-linguistic approach if I don't know that their answer is right? If you're asking them, how do you say this in Arabic? Um, what would you say to that? Do they have to know all of the languages spoken by their students to use a cross-linguistic approach? So, yeah, often uh, teachers, um, even in immersion schools, but in uh, schools where there's usually one language used for instructional purposes, they're hesitant or they even dislike the uh, idea of cross-linguistic pedagogies because they only know one language and they don't feel they're competent enough in the other language. But I don't think that really matters. I think it, you, uh, teachers... I've been monitoring classrooms where the teacher is calling on the students to make connections to the other language, and then other students within the classroom who speak that language can confirm whether the student who's responding is correct or not. So, for example, in the classroom I sat in on Italy, it was actually an English immersion classroom for Italian-speaking children, 
we have to think about this for a bit, English immersion for Italian-speaking children, but there were in fact many immigrant children in the classroom. And as the teacher was teaching a lesson in mathematics in English, uh, and she was talking about addition and subtraction and all this, every now and then she would ask children who spoke neither English nor Italian how they would count numbers or how they would add or divide in their native language. So, and the students who spoke these other languages were really delighted to get up in class and show what they knew in their native language. So you could do this in a French, if you've got a French language school and the teacher is really monolingual in French, then she could actually get the English speaking students to make connections between English and French, even though her knowledge of English may be very limited. Um, whether or not the students are absolutely correct or not, to me, is less important than the fact than the fact that the teacher is encouraging students to make connections between the two languages. Yeah, I think that that's important. And um, I remember I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about, you know, if you even allow children to have a discussion, a brief discussion in class in a language that you don't speak. So let's say it's Arabic. Let's say you have a group of two or three children that speak Arabic. You know, one of the questions was, well, how do you know they're actually talking about what they're supposed to be talking about? And I think that their body language will say a lot. And if they're looking at, you know, the, the textbook in front of them, or if you're, they're gesturing, you kind of get a sense of what they're talking about just by their mannerisms. And I think that teachers are excellent at observing and at trying to pick up on, on these cues. So I think that um, this, I, I would just recommend teachers to try it. Try it and see, yes. you know. Right. Well, frankly, if you allow students to use uh, the language, uh, their native language for these pr these preliminary activities where they're brainstorming about a topic or they're trying to find a solution to a problem, if they do it in their stronger language, they're much more likely to be focusing on the problem right. than it requires that they do this in a language they don't know. Um, and as I say, other students, you can count on the other students who know both languages that you're talking about, they kind of be the monitors. I don't, I don't think, I think you have to trust students at a certain point. And by allowing students to use the language, again, under controlled circumstances and for a limited time, you encourage them to engage. In the case of third language students, it also clearly is a badge of honor to, to them when they can show off what they know in their language. And I think that it, re, it it sort of encourages appreciation among the other students about these other languages. Well, I think it gives us a lot to think about. And, you know, the, the students are changing. The, the, you know, the linguistic demography of students is changing, especially in a lot of the schools across Canada, uh, elsewhere, in, in a lot of the French schools. And I know that a lot of teachers are wondering how do they teach multilingual children? Do we use more of a cross-linguistic approach? Do we use, like you said, bilingualism through monolingualism? Um, so just, I am mindful of time. What would be some of your final remarks or take-home messages for educators who are really uh, unsure about pedagogical strategies, especially in a linguistic minority context, um, when one of the main objectives is to preserve the language and to really give space for the minority language. So how do you encourage the use of other languages, especially English, when the minority language is already, you know, difficult to, um, to, to maintain? Yes, well, I think that the, the teachers need to be very mindful of the uh, status of the two languages. And, and, and I think they probably are already. And what they need to do is encourage the use of the minority language as much as possible in a very constructive and positive way. Uh, at the same time, I think that they need to make space for the other language, but do it in a, in a purposeful and a, a controlled way so that you are um, encouraging these cross-linguistic connections, which is a, a good goal in itself. But by creating spaces for the other language, you're making the use of that language and you're making the support for the minority language less punitive. You're, you're creating spaces where both languages can 
uh, coexist, but you're indicating very clearly that you, you in this particular space, you prefer them to use this language, but you're not forbidding the use of the other language. And I think by using these cross-linguistic, using cross-linguistic pedagogies um, meaning, in a meaningful way, you can meet both of these goals, but at the same time achieve certain kinds of instructional or educational goals. I also think that there's a, an important role for parents to play, and parents have parents can support the use of the minority language by the way they use language at home. Um, this is not easy. Uh, um, it's easy to say, oh, parents should do this, that, and the other thing. That doesn't necessarily make it easy. It's actually very hard uh, in some cases if you're surrounded by English and you're trying to support the use of French. But I think parents need to stick at it as much as they can. Um, one way in which I've seen parents do this, I'm not sure you can do this on a broad scale, but I've seen parents who struggle with this. What they do is they try to arrange for their children, for the family, to go to um, communities in Canada or elsewhere where the their language, say French, is really the societal language so that you reinforce the status of French and you give your child opportunities to use French in context where it's perfectly natural and normal to use only French. That's That requires special efforts, obviously, but it's just to reinforce that I think parents have an important role to play, but it's a tough one. It's not easy. No, and I can definitely uh, speak from experience again. And I, I did that recently. I took my three kids to Quebec to ski for winter vacation. And they had never been in a context where French was spoken in society. And they, they really chuckled at first because, of course, there are differences in terms of their accent and the, the expressions that are used. Right. But, you know, by the end of the week, they were very used to it and they were able to use some of the same vocabulary words. I mean, we were skiing, so it was kind of limited to skiing. But they, these were words that they had never heard in French before, really, for the most part. Right. Skiing right. outside of Quebec is, is pretty much in English. And so that was a really good experience for them to see. And, and so I, I definitely recommend And I know that it's not always possible to do that, especially if you're living out in BC, perhaps. Um, but there are small communities where you might find um, uh, francophone communities or, or community centers where you can find activities that are held mostly in the minority language. Right. I think uh, parents, um, the struggle that parents might go through, it, it's probably useful for them to, to keep in mind that in the long run, the, their children will be at a great advantage by speaking French and English, because the world is, I mean, we're going through tough times now in the world, but the world is still more international and global than it ever has been. And the opportunities that students will have when they leave school is much, much greater if they know more than one language. If you know only one language, English is a good language to, to know, but there's data that shows that <clears throat> there's far more people speak English as a second language mm -hmm. than English as a first language. So what, that's important because it tells us that English is important, but it also tells us that speaking only English is not good enough because monolingual English speakers are going to be competing in their professional fields with lots of people who speak English, but they speak other languages. Mm. So for uh, parents who are trying to prepare their children for the international scene that they're going to be living in, speaking English is good, but continuing to support French is very, very important because they will have an advantage that monolingual English speakers don't have. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. That long-term goal in mind because it's easy to be distracted by the, the pressures of day-to-day -day existence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, short-term pain for long-term gain. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, it, would there be any resources um, when it comes to this topic? So you talked about a couple of books that I'll put on the show notes. We talk about the Ballinger and Collaborator article. I'll also put the link to that. Any other resources that you might want to add? Well, there, there is a website called Multilingual Matters that um, actually provides some resources on bilingualism, raising children bilingually. Uh, Francois Grosjean also has a website uh, that is very useful where he provides blogs about growing up bilingually. He actually is in Switzerland, he's English, French, bilingual himself. 
So if, if, if there are parents who are interested in looking at additional points of view or additional resources, these two might be useful. Um, it depends on the specific uh, interests and goals that teachers or educators have. We've written a number of, well, I've written other books with Marvin Joanne Parity from the University of Alberta called Dual Language Development and Disorders by Brooks Publisher. And if, if educators are looking for general background about children growing up bilingually or children being educated bilingually, and in particular children who might have a reading impairment or a language impairment, this is a good source of summary of research about these and is in fairly accessible terms. And we provide, we try to provide some practical advice on how to identify children who are bilingual but might have a, a reading or a language disorder and what to, how to help them. Yes, that is absolutely a, a great book. And the third edition just came out in 2021. That's right, right, right. Mm -hmm. right. So I'll be sure to put the link to that resource as well. Well, thank you so much. Um, I feel like we could talk uh, for another hour on this topic. There, are, It's very complex and there are so many nuances and variables that come into play. But uh, I think this gives a, the listeners a general idea of uh, what it means to learn two languages in school and how teachers can best support these dual language learners um, and, and the advantages in doing so. So thank you very much. Um, very much appreciate you being here today and agreeing to being a guest on this podcast. My pleasure, my pleasure. And good luck with the, uh, the series. Thank you. Mm -hmm.